speech just means the government can't arrest you for saying what you said. But you can still face societal consequences for saying things that society doesn't like. We don't have a problem with freedom of speech because I can still say whatever I want. Uh, and this is America, and that's why my family came here. It seems like no one can have an opinion now without being picketed or blamed and uh, boycotted. And I just think uh, freedom of speech is going out the door. America has a free speech problem. That New York Times editorial headline recently reignited an ongoing debate over free speech and how the term is applied. New polling from Times Opinion and Siena College shows that 84% of adults think it's a very serious or somewhat serious problem that some Americans don't speak freely because they fear retaliation or criticism. The editorial board equates this anxiety with losing what it calls a, quote, fundamental right for citizens of a free country, the right to speak our minds. Critics were swift to blast this equivalency, including the editorial boards of the Philadelphia Inquirer and Portland Press-Herald. 63% of Americans surveyed by the Knight Foundation feel that free speech is one of their most important rights. But not everyone agrees on what it really means, including some of you, as we heard at the start. So does America have a free speech problem? We'll get into that after the break. And is having to watch what you say really the same thing as stifling your right to speak freely? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or to just let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We're discussing freedom of speech. Joining us is Thomas Simmer. He's a columnist for The Guardian and a visiting history professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School for Foreign Service. Thomas, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us, Alex Abdo. He's the litigation director for the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. He was also formerly a senior attorney with the ACLU. Alex, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. So let's start with the definition of free speech according to the Constitution. Alex, how is it defined in the First Amendment? Well, the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And those 14 words or so don't answer any of the hardest questions that the uh, First Amendment poses today. But that's the core protection, and it's a protection against governmental restrictions on speech. It is not a protection against societal reactions. It is not a protection against being shamed or shunned. It is simply but very importantly a protection against official efforts to censor speech or to stifle debate and discussion. And when we talk about governmental institutions that are covered by this amendment, what are we talking about broadly? Well, that you know, the amendment itself says Congress, but since uh, you know, since the early 20th century, the Supreme Court has interpreted uh, the provision to apply to essentially all officials of the federal or state government. And which institutions can restrict speech as they see fit? Even institutions covered by the First Amendment can restrict speech in certain instances, depending on what the purposes are and how they're going about it. And that is subject to review by the courts to make sure it's constitutional. Uh, But outside of those institutions, you have private institutions, private universities, private employers, private individuals in their interactions with friends and colleagues. Uh, And all of those institutions and individuals are protected in deciding what they want to say to one another, in deciding with whom they want to associate, uh, in deciding whether they want to shame or shun 
uh, uh, friends or colleagues based on the views they express. That's all protected by the First Amendment. Thomas, the New York Times op-ed initially defined free speech as the people's right, quote, to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned, end quote. You say that right has never existed anywhere. What do you mean? Well, look, um, public speech has always been regulated. There have always been boundaries to what is considered acceptable and, and what is not. I mean, everyone agrees that certain transgressions should be met with well, we might not want to say shaming or shunning, but with criticism, right? That, you know, we should push back against uh, certain speech. Um, and I think the problem with the New York Times uh, editorial board intervention in this in this debate is that it, it, it ignores the fact that, you know, the, the question that we're really facing is in a situation in which norms on speech are changing, the question that we're really debating is, who gets to define the boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not uh, with regards to public speech? Who gets to define what what can be said and what should be met with criticism? That is changing, and that is sort of where the pushback from conservatives, where the pushback from the right is coming from. Um, but it's never been the case that we, you know, there have always been societal norms that have defined certain boundaries to what is acceptable. I think we can all, if we just think about for five minutes, we can all come up with a, a bunch of things that we all think, you know, should be met with criticism, uh, should even be met with maybe sort of ostracizing or shaming or shunning or whatever. And that's just it's not new. It's not specifically American. Um, everywhere in the world, there have always been, there will always be societal norms uh, regulating that. And Alex, what about the legal caveats to the right to free speech, at least as it's defined in the First Amendment? Well, the legal exceptions are pretty narrow for speech like obscenity, uh, fighting words, defamation, those sorts of things. Um, and those are, you know, those categories are very narrow. Some of them are thought really not to exist as a practical matter anymore, like the category of fighting words. Uh, you know, but those, ex- those exceptions are very narrow. And I agree, though, with, uh, that, with Thomas that uh, you know, there is separately in this country an understanding of there being a cultural right of free speech. But what that right is, is deeply contested. And it has always been deeply contested. And there, there has never been a consensus on where uh, somebody's right to criticize butts up against somebody else's right to be free of of criticism so that they can express their views. And as Thomas said, there are plenty of examples of shaming and shunning, and, I, and I'm going to continue to use the New York Times' phrase, of shaming and shunning being used in ways that people would think of as salutary, as, as beneficial to society. And the, the easiest example for me to point to uh, are the uh, boycotts that the civil rights movement put in place of racist institutions. And they did that specifically as a form of social and economic pressure uh, to make the point that they were making about racial inequality and racial injustice in this country. And by some measures, it was extraordinarily effective and, and an important part of the civil rights movement and achieving at least legal equality uh, in this country. As we know, there's still a much broader fight for you know, actual equality. Uh, but, but returning to the legal framework, has an era, an era of that level of free speech ever existed for it existed in America where everyone, even within those legal parameters, had the same level of access to free speech? No, of course not. In, in part because uh, many people have, you know, were historically excluded from legal protections in this country. You don't have to go very far back in our history to find, uh, you know, racist laws that uh, excluded people from uh, the protections that others enjoy. 
But even once we've achieved legal quality in some areas, as a practical matter, free speech is not distributed equally. Uh, you know, if you have more money or more property, you generally are going to have a greater uh, practical ability to speak because you need money and property to speak or at least to speak most loudly and effectively. So the phrase free speech is often thrown around when someone thinks their speech is being threatened or repressed. Thomas, why do you think that the, the term often gets conflated with the legal right of free speech? Well, I think um, right now we're seeing the terms of deliberately weaponized, I think, in, in this sort of the in this current context and this current conflict over, uh, again, changing norms on speech and, and sort of the, the conservative or the right-wing pushback against those changes because they, they don't like those changes. And they deliberately, I think, weaponized the term, just like the term cancel culture, um, to basically delegitimize um, the claims of, you know, traditionally marginalized groups um, who have become, you know, influential enough, powerful enough to make their claims heard, um, to to become a sort of an important voice in in this debate over who gets to define the boundaries of, of speech. We reached out to the New York Times editorial board for comment on their free speech op-ed, but we didn't hear back. Here's a message we got from Miles in Connecticut. Hi, my name is Miles. I'm calling from Glastonbury, Connecticut, regarding the question of whether we have a free speech problem in this country. Uh, I would say we don't, but that the people that are so often complaining about their, their uh, infringements on their free speech are the ones with the biggest problem with free speech, because they really don't, they want free speech for themselves, but they don't want to hear the speech from others in response um, who may disagree or may find their hate or racism or other comments that they've made uh, offensive. And they want to be able to have uh, unlimited freedom of speech without fear of any reaction from others. Miles, thanks for that message. Our producer, Sophia Alvarez-Boyd, spoke with Kyla Garrett-Wagner, a professor of communications at Syracuse University. Wagner studies the public opinion of free speech, and she said this about the way social media complicates the issue. I think what social media has done for us is a combination of two things. One is it significantly opened the marketplace of speakers. So no longer is it just powerful positions or even just like the positions of journalists and identified members of people in a certain profession who are getting to speak. Everybody and anybody can speak at this point, so long as you have adequate access to the Internet and feel like engaging on those platforms. That being said, the the landscape of speakers has significantly increased, as has the audience. But I think one of the things that's gotten a lot worse is these same platforms that allow us to come to these marketplaces and engage in these marketplaces also afford us the tool to block people in those spaces. And I think it's very important that we do not conflate the rights to engage or with speakers that we don't like with the idea of I'm going to delete a speaker. That's very different. Counter speech is actually like the crux of the First Amendment. In the wake of speech you do not like, you should be counter speaking to speakers. And we're not doing that. So Alex, I first want to hear from you how you think our understanding, our our cultural understanding of free speech has changed as a result of new technology and the rise of social media. Well, it has become easier than ever for people to voice their opinions, uh, you know, in the, in the modern age of social media than it used to be. And it's extraordinary in a lot of ways, but it has also pitted people against uh, their fellow 
uh, citizens in ways that they weren't pitted against them before so immediately and so directly. And so you're seeing a lot of tension and conflicts and we're navigating you know, these new technologies and developing new norms. And the norms for how people should behave or uh, um, on these platforms and what kinds of reactions they can or shouldn't uh, be required to accept on the platforms are very much developing. And that is, that is the fight of free speech. That's, a, that's the challenge of free speech. It is not a static understanding. It is not something we inherit from our predecessors. It is a cultural sense that we have to uh, redefine every generation and within each generation because it's going to be different for everybody in different circumstances. And that's, it's a fight very much worth having. It's a conversation very much worth having. Um, but it's a, it's a very hard one to claim at any point that we've arrived at the answer because we haven't. Thomas, how do you think about the freedom of speech versus the expectation that you'll be listened to? So am I, I'm a black woman, supposed to engage in in counter speech with someone who wants to argue that black people shouldn't have rights? Well, I think think the crux of the matter is that we are now in a moment where you can, right? Where, um, I mean, not not just you specifically, but, you know, traditionally marginalized groups, um, who have for, you know, the, the norm in American history has been up until quite recently that they have not been able to engage in any kind of counter speech. Um, and that has changed somewhat, right? Um, it's still not a level playing field, but I think um, just just as Alex said, um, we are in a way, we are experiencing um, a, a, a period in which it has never been easier to make your voice heard, to put it out there, to put your viewpoints out there through new technologies. Um, and I think that is exactly the crux of the matter because that that kind of that upends a sort of the traditional power imbalance which put certain people uh, at the top and and sort of gave certain people the right to define um, um, what speech was acceptable and and what wasn't and so so now we have to sort of we have to renegotiate this right and, and a lot of a lot more people a lot more, a lot more groups are now part of that uh, 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 sort of renegotiation I mean that's an ongoing process it's not going to be that's not going to be over tomorrow or next year or in 10 years that's that's probably a, a never-ending process in a way um, but again I think the 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 people who are decrying a free speech crisis and who are using the cancel culture terms um, they want this debate to be over and they want to turn the clock back to a point um, where the traditional traditionally marginalized groups were not at the table were not able to be part of that conversation were not able to make their uh, point of view uh, part of the conversation around where those boundaries are I think that is the entire crux of the matter well, Thomas, in the New York Times op-ed, the editorial board says so-called cancel culture has had a chilling effect on people's ability to express their opinions, especially difficult ones. And though I'm sure people are pretty familiar with the term at this, at this point, it, the phrase applies to instances when someone is removed from a platform or loses their livelihood or is otherwise ostracized for saying something um, people or the platforms themselves deem offensive. But when you apply a historical lens to this conversation Thomas how do you how do you think about the way speech has been restricted culturally over the course of history and whose speech has been restricted 
the biggest problem with the, or one of the big problems with the New York Times editorial board intervention was that it was it presented a completely ahistorical perspective on this on this whole debate. It presented a narrative of decline, right? They were talking about, oh, something has been lost. We are losing something, which suggests that it was better in the past, right? There was a sort of a, a golden age of free speech somewhere in the past. That's just weaponized nostalgia, right? I mean, when exactly was that golden age of free speech supposed to be when all Americans were free to speak their mind at, at all times. I mean, unless, you know, unless we are talking about straight white Christian men only, um, it makes absolutely no sense to construct a version of U.S. history in which the past was characterized by that type of free speech for all Americans, in, in which sort of the very recent past has been characterized by a loss of free speech. That's just not um, what we're experiencing. If anything, again, if anything, um, at no point in American history have so many people, so many groups been able to to um, express speech or counter speech, um, take part in, in this debate. So that is, I think, a big problem in this entire sort of free speech crisis, cancel culture discourse. It suggests, um, again, a, a, a golden age of free speech that was somehow lost. Um, and, you know, there's absolutely no empirical basis for that. Let's go to this voicemail we got from Mark in Coconut Grove, Florida. We definitely have a free speech issue here in the U.S. Council culture stifles ideas, stifles communication, stifles debate. And to anybody that says that it's only a problem if a government entity does it, we have a cultural speech problem. And if we don't value free speech culturally, there is no way we're going to have a First Amendment much longer or anything resembling what we regard as a First Amendment. Thomas, what are your thoughts on that argument? Well, look... Um, in a vacuum, if it were the case, right, um, leave aside sort of legal issues. If it were the case that, you know, the vast majority of Americans were facing severe consequences for simply, uh, you know, publicly stating any kind of, you know, uh, political statement that was deemed offensive or controversial or whatever, and they would all lose their livelihoods. If that were actually the case, then I, I do agree. Absolutely. In the abstract, I do agree. We would have a massive problem. The question is, does that actually empirically, is that actually empirically speaking the case, right? And it's not. I mean, if if you look at, I mean, we, we're being treated in sort of the New York Times and the Atlantic and sort of all the mainstream media sources. I'm not just talking about sort of right-wing media. We're being treated to all these cancel culture stories. But if you actually look at the evidence that is presented there, right? I mean, quite often, Either the consequences aren't really all that severe, right? I mean, maybe someone loses an endorsement deal or whatever. Or if you look closely, it turns out, I mean, you know, even by the loose standards of what it means to be canceled, there was no cancellation whatsoever. Or maybe it turns out that the cancellation was entirely justified if you, again, not just say, oh, someone lost their livelihood over saying something on Twitter. And then you look, no, what did they say on Twitter? Well, racism sexism, misogyny, or maybe some conspiracy theories around COVID, and their employer, after after you know warning them several times, decided, look, we no longer want to be associated with this person. Again, I think we have to take the, the debate from sort of the abstract to the specific. And if we look at the specific, most of the time, these cases just turn out to be, again, a lot more benign, um, a lot less canceling involved. And so I don't think 
that we're actually facing the situation that the cancel culture warriors want us to believe we're in, which is a national crisis creeping authoritarianism, right? I don't think that is the case. I don't think there's any empirical evidence that would support that. And Alex, very briefly, do you think part of this is just the amplification of social media, how how it how it really gets us into these these closed loops of conversations without the kind of empirical evidence that Thomas is say, talking about. I, I absolutely think that, and not just the amplification, but the permanence of it. Because now when we speak and somebody disagrees with us, that disagreement is recorded for a, a decade or longer and is a part of our permanent record. We're discussing so-called cancel culture and free speech in America. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation about First Amendment rights. Recently, the Federalist Society at Yale Law School hosted a bipartisan panel on civil liberties and free speech, but more than 100 students protested one of the speakers, conservative lawmaker Kristen Wagner. Uh, Wagner works at the Alliance Defending Freedom, that's a legal advocacy group that often takes anti-LGBTQ positions. The event went on despite protesters shouting over Wagner, and she later spoke to Daily Signal podcast host Douglas Blair about what she called a violation of her First Amendment rights. And there were about 150 or so kids there, I'm told, and about 120 of them uh, didn't just break out in a protest, but uh, really started making the classroom a very volatile environment. Now, by hostile environment, what do you mean by that? Were they yelling? Were they shouting? Were they, was it physical? What happened? Well, and I wouldn't even say hostile. Hostile doesn't bother me. Volatile bothers me. Um, you know, these, this is Yale Law School. These are supposed to be the future leaders, future lawyers, jurists, legislators, corporate executives. And, and rather um, than simply debate ideas, if they had objections, they resorted to hurling insults, using obscene gestures and language, uh, eventually shouting down the speakers, shouting down some of their fellow students who had conservative views. And then they left and started pounding on the walls outside of the exits of the building, uh, eventually creating what felt like an unsafe environment, and the police were called. Alex, on a legal basis, does it appear that anyone's First Amendment rights were violated here? No, nobody's First Amendment rights were violated. You know, these were private protesters of private speech on a private university campus. I I think the most that can be said is that uh, Yale University's uh, free speech policy may have been violated. I'm not an expert in Yale's free speech policy, but if so, that you know, then the university would have been the one to enforce it. It wouldn't have been a First Amendment question. Well, on Monday, Yale Law School Dean Heather Gherkin came out with a statement. This is weeks after the protest, saying the behavior was quote unacceptable, but did not violate the school's free speech policy. Alex, what would it have looked like if there was a violation? Well, I don't know their policy exactly, but I but I can say generally speaking. Uh, There are a lot of universities that have a policy of allowing students to invite speakers to their campuses and of protecting the ability of those students to hear from the speakers they've invited. Um, And the policies, as a result, uh, forbid effectively shutting down the event, being disruptive to the point where you're shutting down the event. And if a university has that policy, and it seems to me like a reasonable policy to have, uh, then I think it's reasonable for the university to enforce that policy when uh, you know, when there is true disruption of the event, when the event, you know, can't go on. That's different to my mind from protesting that 
uh, takes place either outside very vocally of the event or even inside so long as it doesn't reach some certain level of, of disruption. Um, and that, you know, that's the kind of policy I would have expected Yale to have, but it sounds as though maybe that's not the policy they have. We got this email from John V. who says, how is Florida's parental rights and education law, that's the so-called don't say gay bill, not in direct opposition to the First Amendment? Curricula can be approved and age inappropriate discussions by teachers can be punished, but appropriate discussions of social interactions and mores cannot be made illegal. I don't understand how this is now law and how it isn't immediately deemed unconstitutional. Alex, state and school districts regularly set curriculum requirements for America's public schools. So how are these laws different than the type of restrictions put in place by, you know, around other course requirements? These kind of laws don't seem like ordinary curricular laws. They're not the ones that decide, um, you know, uh, what people should learn based on the pedagogical benefit of learning certain things. They seem to be designed to suppress ideas and designed to suppress, um, you know, uh, the, the discussion of whole topics in ways that are counterproductive when it comes to educating young people. Um, and I'm certain that these laws will be challenged and we'll see what the courts have to say about them and whether the states can come up with a plausible pedagogical explanation. But color me skeptical hmm. that they'll be able to do so. Thomas, as a professor, how are you thinking about these laws getting passed? And, and what would you say to other professors who are now navigating new restrictions on their speech in the classroom? I mean, I am, I'm extremely worried. I'm alarmed about what we're seeing here. I 100% agree with Alex. This is everyone who is worried about free speech in America. This is where we need to focus our attention. We're, we're facing an unprecedented wave of legislation introduced or already passed by Republicans, basically uh, wherever they are in charge in all the quote-unquote red states that are, that, that are setting... Um, uh, uh, severe limits to what can be taught um, in in you know in in public education. That's yet properly censor, outlaw certain ideas, topic offers, including the banning of books. What is left is a sort of a narrow white nationalist story of of America's past and present, and everything else is basically punishable. Right. Um, this is I mean this is properly a, a, an assault on. Uh, on free speech, on sort of the, the freedom, freedom uh, to expression, um, and you know, it is it is quite striking. I think that the cancel culture discourse is almost entirely and, and willfully oblivious to to these uh, to these sort of uh, um, you know initiatives by Republicans uh, on the state level to actually introduce laws to use the state, use the government to restrict speech, um, to censor, to outlaw certain ideas and, and offers. It's an almost entirely oblivious to um, to these efforts, and I think that tells you something about what's really behind sort of the cancel culture panic. If it really was a serious sort of sincere uh, concern over free speech, then you would expect the same people who are treating us again like on a day basis with these cancel culture stories, you would expect them to also pay a lot of attention to what is going on on the state level, but they are not, right? And so I think that tells you a lot about what's actually behind, what's actually the political project behind the cancel culture panic. Thomas, do you think there are ways the people on the other side of the political spectrum um, have contributed to free speech restrictions? Again, I want to, I think we need to distinguish between two things. It's a big country, right? There are a lot of people and the internet is a big place and it can be a nasty place. Are there instances where we have um, um, nasty uh, internet pylons 
uh, uh, people just, you know, that, of course, right, all of this exists. There, there are people, there are um, maybe activists who are taking this too far. There are people on the left who are um, um, sort of, you know, taking all this. All of this exists. I'm not saying that's not in a way a problem or a debate we need to have. Um, all of this exists. But it's entirely qualitative, in terms of quality, it's entirely different from, again, the efforts by state actors, by uh, lawmakers, by political decision makers to um, introduce and enact legislation that actually stifles speech. These things are qualitatively entirely different. And I think the problem is the problem is that the cancel culture discourse or the the idea that we are facing sort of a nationwide crisis of cancel culture that is actually it's a a distraction of these sort of state efforts to censor speech and it is b also taken as a justification for precisely these state efforts to uh, stifle speech that is why i think we need to be very careful with what we're sort of uh we're sort of presenting this as some kind of uh, false equivalence right um because that's exactly Exactly what is again? It's it's a it, it distracts us from what's going on on the state level, and it also used by these actors in the states as a justification for their efforts to censor speech. Here's a tweet we got from Matthew Ward, who says, "As an assistant professor, I see the understanding of counter speech as cancel culture, as rooted in the weakness of civics education. These misunderstandings of First Amendment limit the ability to meaningfully engage in politics and exacerbate polarization. This is harmful for our democracy." Alex, where do you think the right to free speech can be strengthened, both legally and culturally? And and by that, I mean, not just our our exercise of free speech, but also our understanding of it. Well, I I think I I didn't catch his name, Matthew. Mm -hmm. I think his tweet is absolutely right. You know, civics education is an enormously important part of maintaining cultural norms across generations. Because as I said, you know, a little bit ago, our sense of free speech is not something that we just are born with or inherit or can take for granted. It, it is a cultural uh, sense, and each generation is a new steward of this cultural sense. And if we want it to uh, you know, carry on from one generation to the next, as contested and as messy uh, as it is, we still need to teach it. We need to educate it. And that's part of the reason that universities, you know, many of them, have policies that allow students to invite speakers to their campus, even speakers uh, whose views are very controversial, and perhaps especially speakers whose views are controversial, is to expose students to the idea that the way that we prefer to resolve disputes uh, in this country is not through naked assertions of political power, but through discourse. And sometimes that discourse is messy, and sometimes it involves the criticism and ostracism that we're seeing But that's the kind of discourse that the First Amendment uh, and our cultural sense of free speech commits us to. But it's one that has to be taught. That's Alex Abdo with Columbia University's Night First Amendment Institute. Also with us today, Thomas Zimmer. He's a columnist with The Guardian and a visiting professor of 20th century history at Georgetown University. Alex Thomas, thanks. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we will talk more soon. This is 1A.